Take your Bibles then, if you would, for those that are still in the auditorium and watching online, Daniel chapter 1, and we intend to finish the chapter this morning, Daniel chapter 1, and uh, if you're new to us here at Grace, again, welcome, thank you so much for being here. Everything we do at Grace Baptist Church comes from God's Word. This is not about our preferences or our hobby horses or pet peeves. This is rooted in and grounded in, founded on the Word of God. And so we want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. I prefer a book, but if you want to go digital, that's fine as well. But please have the Word of God open in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, if you came this morning and don't have a Bible, uh, we have one for you somewhere under the chairs in front of you. There should be a Bible, and in that Bible, I believe it's on page 690, 690, Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. As mentioned in the illustration for the kids, this is a sermon titled Rooted. Daniel makes a resolution. He sets his heart to something and does not waver from that. Now, Daniel is not the hero of this story, as no human is the hero of any story. God is the hero of this story, so this is not going to be a dare to be a Daniel anywhere in this sermon series. But it is to say that Daniel makes this decision prior to being kidnapped, prior to being forced into captivity, all the way from Judah to Babylon. He has made a decision to honor God, and it's a decision that is tested, but he stands by that decision. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read from God's word, Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, the three years set, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. And so we have before us a familiar scene, hopefully to many of us, but I think there is a lot here for us this morning. As mentioned... 
The year that Daniel's born, or roughly thereof, King Josiah has individuals clean out the temple and refit it for worship of the one true God. In that search and in that uh, cleaning, the word of God is found, it is read for the first time in many years, and it has begun to be followed. And Josiah brings in many reforms, 2 Kings chapter 23. The Passover is celebrated for the first time in many years. And so Daniel grows up in the Judean court under a revival from God, learning and knowing the word of God, and it is ingrained in him. He has a desire then to honor God, a desire shared by his three friends, a desire that he holds to even after he is ripped away from his homeland, carried off to the foreign nation of Babylon, and put into forced instruction, dare I say indoctrination, under the nation of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. It is this rootedness in the word of God and a relationship with God that leads to Daniel's resolve. And so when we see in the first place then this morning, rooted in relationship with God throughout this text and throughout the book, what roots Daniel and his three friends, what grounds them, what provides them a firm foundation is their relationship with God through his word. I don't know about you, but it seems like a lot of things are chaotic right now in our culture. It seems like things that should be satire, things that couldn't possibly be true or believed, are openly shown or openly purported to be true and that which we all should get on board with. There's a lot of chaos and instability. Things seem a little shaky right now. What is true? What is good? What should I do and what should I not do? And those questions are answered in a variety of ways. What ought to ground us is our relationship with the one who made us, which can only be found through him, through Christ, by his Holy Spirit, and the word of God, which is truth. And so while we may not have been removed physically from our nation and taken to a foreign nation, there are times where it feels like we are living more and more in a foreign nation, a nation that has changed around us, although we have not changed. And so Daniel is very adept, very relevant, very helpful in helping us understand how do we respond and react when things are anti-God among us. And so we see in the first place that Daniel is rooted and resolved. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now this is very interesting because in verse 7, twice the word, or I should say, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, Daniel he called, in the Hebrew those, that's the same word. And it's the word for set. So what is interesting is the chief of the eunuchs, Aspenaz, sets a new name for Daniel and his three friends and sets a new name for Daniel in particular, and in the very next verse, but Daniel set in his heart. There's competing ideologies here. There's competing goals and purposes here. Aspenaz's goal is to make these Israelis, to make these Jews Babylonian. His task from his king is to take all of these foreign captives, all of these slaves, 
and turn them into Chaldeans, indoctrinate them in the culture, the way of thinking, the way of eating, giving them new names as we saw last week. But Daniel's resolve is that he would not defile himself with the king's food and, and drink. Now there is endless speculation as to why this is the case. Some think that it's dietary. Daniel wouldn't know how the meat was prepared and whether it was bled correctly, whether it was, as we would call it nowadays, kosher. And yet in Daniel 10, he is actually eating both meat and drinking wine from which he abstains. So it doesn't appear to be the food itself. Some say, well, maybe it was offered to idols. And yet both the water and the vegetables could also have been offered to idols prior to him receiving it. He would have no idea whether that was the case. Some say it was because he didn't want to depend on the king. As we saw last week, there's a dependency built in here. The slaves depend even on the king for their food. And yet, where did the vegetables and the water come from? <laughs> it also came from the king. I think perhaps best we know, and all of this is speculation because the text doesn't actually tell us, that this one thing Daniel hangs on to to remind him of his relationship with God. They've changed his name. They've changed his education. They've changed his clothing, presumably. Everything about him has changed. And so he is resolving in his heart, but this one thing, one thing that I do at least three times a day, I'm going to do it differently so that every time I eat, it reminds me of the one true God and not the gods of the culture around me. I need a small slice of normalcy in the midst of chaos. Whatever the reason, Daniel is resolved to honor God and that resolution predates the captivity. And so, as our culture becomes increasingly hostile to God and his word, are we resolved that we are going to honor him no matter what? I hope we are through the power that God gives because that will be tested. It may not have been tested, at least not to the point of perhaps losing our employment or any number of things, but that is coming if things continue as they are. May this resolution be in our hearts prior to the testing of it. But notice Daniel is also rooted in humility. So Daniel says, I must honor God. And one of the ways I'm going to show that is I'm not going to eat the lavish, decadent food that the king provides, but I'm going to eat a much more simple meal to remind myself of God's providence and to keep myself wholly devoted to him. So in order to do that, I'm going to start a petition, and I'm hoping to get at least four signatures, mine and my three friends, and maybe a few others, and that will hopefully change the king's mind. Is that Daniel's way of going about it? No. So Daniel says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write on some signs, and we're going to pick it outside of the palace. Nebuchadnezzar unfair to foreigners, and that will change his mind. I'm going to write a blog post. I'm going to post on my social media page. I'm going to start a campaign against the government. Is this how Daniel goes about it? No. Now, I'm not necessarily disparaging those things on their face. 
What I am saying is Daniel is instructive because how does he go about it? He goes about it by going to Aspenaz, the chief of the eunuchs. And here's something that it says in the text, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God hadn't abandoned these four Hebrew boys. Felt like he had, but God had a reason and a purpose to have them in Babylon. And it's one we're gonna get back to before the end of the sermon, and it's one I'm, I'm hoping makes us squirm a little. Because God had a purpose for these four Hebrew youths to be in a foreign nation. He had not abandoned them. This was not proof of God's indifference or his lack of love. This was proof of God's love. And even here on foreign soil with foreign captors, God gives favor and compassion in the heart of Aspenaz. But what is Aspenaz's response? I'm not sure I can do that, Daniel, because if you're not in shape, my head's on the line. But it's not an outright refusal. He just simply says, I'd like to play ball with you, but there's an issue. If I change anything about this regimen, including the diet, and you're worse off than everybody else, it's not just you that's going to suffer the consequences, but I'm going to suffer the consequences, and quite literally, it could mean my head, my life. There's an open door. It's only open a crack, but it is open. So what's Daniel's next move? He doesn't then complain, beg, start an online campaign against. He, he doesn't try to run down Aspenaz. What does he do? He goes to the guard, the steward, in verse 11, that's been assigned over them by the chief of the eunuchs and says, how about this? There's a three-year period for us to be trained in the way of, of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days. What is that, a week plus a few days? Give us this diet. We won't eat the diet that's provided for us. And then test us and see. So no skin off your nose. Not going to pro be problematic for you. Because if we're sickly, if we're not as in, in good shape as the rest of the guys, then we'll go to the king's diet. We'll get on board. But just give us, just give us a test here. And what does he say? So he listened to them in this matter, verse 14, and tested them for 10 days. Daniel's approach is just wrought with humility. He's not demanding. He doesn't get his back up. How dare you treat a member of the Jewish family this way? I am a son of God. How dare you treat me this way? I protest. No, what does Daniel do? In great humility, he simply comes to Aspenaz and says, listen, can, can I have this little slice of normalcy? And Aspenaz says, I'd like to, but uh, that could be problematic. So then Daniel goes to the lesser magistrate, the one under Aspenaz, to say, hey, how about this? Don't offer a problem without a solution. How about this? Just test this for 10 days, see how this works. And so the chief steward agrees. But notice in the third place, it's also rooted in trust in God. Now Daniel's not saying to God, hey, you have to come through for me. His three friends in chapter three are going to walk through the fiery furnace. 
and they're going to say to Nebuchadnezzar, if God saves us, great. If he doesn't, not as great, but then we're with him, so it's even better, and either way, we can't worship false gods. Daniel is not presuming upon God's grace, but he is trusting in God's providence and grace. And so what happens? At the end of the 10-day test, it was clearly visible. Now, I don't know about you, but, and I rarely change my diet, but I'm not sure about how changing a simple thing like your diet for 10 days would have that noticeable an effect. Clearly, the hand of God is all through this, but it, it's clearly seen they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. This 10-day testing period that Daniel proposes is accepted, and it works. It's visible, noticeable on the outside that Daniel and his three friends are in better physical shape just by this one change than the other youths in captivity. And so the steward makes that standard practice through the rest of the three years. They're now given vegetables and water instead of wine and the king's meat. But notice again Daniel's great humility and his trust in God. God, if you come through for me, that's great. If you don't, that's also great, but I trust in you. I've made this resolution to honor you. I want to remind myself daily to trust in you when the culture all around me is anti-you. So I need this, and if it is your will, would you give it to me? And God does. God comes, up, comes through. Which leads us to the second point, is that all of this is rooted in God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty is all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. But even in this short passage, it appears at least three times. But you can miss it if you're not looking for it. We've already mentioned this, but God gives something in verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. It's the same word in verse 2 where the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Why does Nebuchadnezzar, why is he victorious in the first place? Because he has superior military uh, might? No. Because he's more moral? No. Because he's more intelligent than Jehoiakim or the Jedans? No. There is no other reason at its core other than it's God's will. God gives Jehoiakim and these individuals into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Same Hebrew word, what does he do for Daniel? He gives compassion and favor into the heart of Espinez. Why in the world would a foreigner care about a Jew? Why in the world would a Babylonian care about these three U's, other, four U's, other than he has to keep them alive and in good shape for when they meet with Nebuchadnezzar? But to have a personal compassion and to have favor, there's no reason for that. In fact, given that he has power and these four U's have none, you would expect an abuse thereof. But God does something. God gives Daniel and his three friends favor and compassion in the heart of this foreign uh, worker, this foreign individual. There's no reason for this other than the sovereignty of God. A little glimpse of God's goodness in the midst of much pain, suffering, and darkness. But notice also the blessing of God. God blesses this 10-day test, but notice in verse 17, as for these four views, God gave, again, same word, same phrase, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is of God. 
We know that there were foreigners taken from other nations, not just Jewish. And this group of noble young people is going to stand before Nebuchadnezzar to advise him and to serve him at his court. But God does something with these four Hebrew youths. He gives them supernaturally more wisdom and understanding than any of the other captives. In all of that group, over the three years, they have risen to the top. They are wiser and have more understanding than any of the others. And to Daniel in particular, he's given him supernatural understanding and visions and dreams. Now as Daniel goes on in chapter 7 through 12, we may be into question whether this is a gift or a curse, but the reality is this is also of God. Daniel can do something that nobody else can do. He can understand what a dream means, and further, he can actually understand what somebody dreamed. This is incredible, and we'll see this in the next chapter. This is supernatural. God gives this. This is of God. It wasn't because they studied harder. It wasn't because of ethnically they just had an advantage genetically. It wasn't because they put in overtime. It wasn't because they sabotaged the other youth so they could get ahead. Why do they have more wisdom and understanding, and why does Daniel have this particular gift of understanding and interpreting dreams, the sovereign God of the universe? He's the one that gives this. And then my favorite verse in all of chapter one is the final one. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. There is so much packed into that little verse. If you were to come upon the scene in Daniel chapter one, who would be most impressive to you? Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, arguably of the ancient kings. He is the most powerful. The Medo-Persian empire has to adhere to the law. Darius, or Darius we know, wants to release Daniel from the lion's den and can't. His power is capped by the law. Nebuchadnezzar has no such restrictions on his power. He is, for all intents and purposes, God in the realm. A fact he hopes to bring home by this ostentatious idol that he's gonna build in the next chapter. Who would we be more afraid of? Who would we be more in awe of? If we walked into that scene, who would we say, this person's gonna last, this person, they're not even going to be a footnote in the history of humanity. You know what's amazing? Daniel, the simple servant of God, outlasts Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, and Belshazzar, and goes all the way through the 70-year captivity until Cyrus allows a contingent of Jews to go back and begin rebuilding the temple and the walls. Who lasts in this story? <laughs> Daniel is given long life into his 80s, just simply serving God in the Babylonian court and then in the Medo-Persian court. I posted an article from our friend and brother Tim Challies on Friday on our social media. All the most impressive human things are in ruins marked by something as flimsy as stone. We get impressed by certain leaders, by certain nations, 
Where are they now? Daniel is the one that outlasts the glory and the pomp and the circumstance of Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his grandson. Daniel's there, in fact, on the very night when Belshazzar loses his life. God preserved Daniel. All of this, then, is rooted in God's sovereignty. God has a reason and a plan for these three, four Hebrew youths. On their end, they are rooted and resolved to rightly relate to him, and that resolution even comes from God. And on God's end, he is there with them. None of this is evidence that God has abandoned them. We may feel that God has abandoned us, the way that society is going and the pressures thereof and, and just the ideas that seem so far removed from anything relating to reality. God has not abandoned us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And the fact that he brought these four Hebrew youths all the way to Babylon is not evidence of a lack of love for them, but in fact is an evidence not only of his love for them, but his love for Babylon and its people and its leader. And this is where it gets really, really squirmy, I think, for us if we're not prepared. Because the final point is, all of this is rooted in God's heart. God has a heart for the lost. God has a heart for humans. He has a heart to see them reconciled to him. Without him, they have no anchor. They are adrift through life. They are, as some one says, like the chaff, the leftover uh, wrapping around the kernel of the wheat. They have no root. They just blow wherever the wind takes them. They have no stability. They have no foundation. Whatever ideology or latest fad or fashion comes around, that's the way that they go. It's majority rules. They have no sense of what is absolute and what is certain. And God's heart is for his people. God's heart is for humanity. He sends Jonah to the Assyrians all the way to Nineveh. He has a heart for all of those that are lost, including these Babylonians. So what is God's heart in the first place? It is holiness. The answer, as we're going to see in more detail this evening in the theology forum, is not to move away from God's holiness. It's actually to move further into God's holiness. We don't share truth by watering it down or denying parts thereof. The truth is the truth and we must stand firm on it. Part of Daniel's understanding the heart of God is for him to be rooted and resolved not to defile himself, not to make himself unholy because his great desire is that he would be holy. He wants to honor his God. He loves God. Notice God's heart is also humility. There's no sense in Daniel's heart of any pride, of that, how dare you do these things to me or say these things, about, how dare you restrict my freedoms? I serve the God of the universe. That's true. We do serve the God of the universe. So why do we feel an unnecessary need to assert that in ways that are inappropriate? Is God insecure about who he is, as we saw last Sunday? <laughs> Should we be insecure about who we are in Christ? Daniel simply goes to the chief eunuch to say, hey, listen, can we work something out here? 
He put up with a change of his name, put up a change of his location. That's why he's there in the first place. Change of education. He makes this one stand for reasons unknown, at best speculation, but the heart underneath it is, I want to be holy before my God. But his handling of that is just bathed in humility. It's not an assertion of his rights. At this point, he doesn't have any. But it's a recognition of who he is. There is a person on the throne. But Daniel is loved by and belongs to the one who sits on the throne in the heavenlies. Therefore, he is not insecure in that. And he, deal, and he, and he serves them from great humility. But here's the last point. Our God has a heart of great compassion. Compassion even towards those who would go into foreign nations and steal their young people. Compassion even for one who would say, look at this great Babylon that I have made. Compassion even for one who would erect a gold statue in his honor and put himself in God's place. God still has compassion for him. We look at this and say, how could a loving God rip four Hebrew youths away from their parents, away from their homeland, and stick them in a foreign country? How awful. But if we see it with God's eyes and his heart of compassion, how amazing that one of the leaders of the ancient world, who, who lays claim to one of the seven wonders of that ancient world, has as his chief advisors four God-fearing individuals. <laughs> what has God done? He's taking four individuals that know him, love him, and serve him, and placed him right next to the king of Babylon. So let me step on your toes. Mine as well. God takes you and gives you the opportunity become the next chief advisor to our prime minister. What are you doing with that opportunity? You know what I would do? I would probably work to undermine him as much as possible so that my preferred party could come to power. If I was ripped out of my bed in the, de in the, in the, in the dead of night and taken to a foreign nation, what is my heart towards the person who did that? Do I see individuals as God sees them? Grace Baptist, individuals here that are part of our Grace Baptist family and watching online, you may not fly the particular flag with Trudeau's name on it, but you might agree with the sentiment. And if you do, you do not have the heart of God. Because our God's heart is a heart of compassion, not just for you, but for everyone. I heard a weak amen. There's a lesson here for us. In the next chapter, Daniel's going to save the lives of his captors. In the chapter after that, his three friends are going to stand up before the king, and God is going to show himself mighty, and the king is going to confess God as being the only God of the universe. And in chapter four, he's going to do it again. Daniel's heart 
is God's heart. Only because of God, Daniel is not the hero of this story. Do we have that, do we understand our God? Our God's not interested primarily in politics because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Our God is interested in, does this individual worship me or not? And if they don't, that is my heart for them. Because only in the worship of me do they know who they are. Do they know their purpose? Do they have meaning and significance in life? Do they have the big questions answered and their ultimate destination secure? When's the last time you prayed for our leaders, provincially and federally? And when's the last time that those prayers were not imprecatory? What would change our nation is not ultimately a change in leadership, but a change in the hearts of those leaders. That's what would change a nation. So, are we rooted in a relationship with God, and do we actually understand who he is? Do we praise him and thank him for his sovereignty, even and especially when that sovereignty brings things into our lives that we do not expect or enjoy? And do our hearts beat with his heart that regardless of our circumstances, like the little servant girl with Naaman the Syrian, if you were that servant girl and this guy had captured you and taken you as a slave and then got leprosy, what's your heart in that? Excellent. Serves you right. Die, scum. What's her heart? Hey, I know somebody could help you. I know somebody could heal you of your leprosy. There's a prophet in Israel. Is that our heart? Does our heart beat with compassion for those around us? Because we are no better than they. We are all sinners, all desperately in need of God's grace. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. We are so undeserving of it. Father, protect us from thinking that because your grace is on us, we are now better than anyone else. Protect us not just from lesser things, but from things that are actually anti-you. Protect us from hearts that do not beat as yours do. May we have a heart for holiness that does not degenerate into a heart for us to win. May we have a heart for humility that does not degenerate into a heart that lacks obedience and adherence to truth. God, please give us a heart for compassion for the lost. The reason why confusion is so rampant, the reason why truth seems to be a commodity in short supply the reason why common sense does not seem to be so common anymore is ultimately 
not ignorance, a lack of education, pride, sin, all those things, all those things all are, all, are all true. It is ultimately because individuals that do not have a relationship with you are untethered and unanchored. They are adrift. They are lost and undone. And what they need is the same thing that we need, is hearts that worship you as supreme. God, give us your heart in all things. And may we share that heart with everyone in our sphere of influence, not from a position of superiority, but from a position of a sinner telling another sinner where they can find grace and mercy and peace and contentment and truth and love. It is only found in you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.